Welcome, everyone. You are listening to the LifePoint Christian Church Podcast. Let's get started. So as we've worked through the book of Revelation this fall, we've discovered that God gave the Apostle John a glimpse into the future, specifically the last seven-year period of time that we call the tribulation period before Jesus returned, or before the second coming of Jesus. And so last week, if you were with us, you saw that God had finally concluded the last of his series of judgments. And that that concluded with the Antichrist and the false prophet um, coming and trying to make war against the people of Israel, against God. And in that uh, moment where they gathered in the Jezreel Valley for the battle of Armageddon, in that moment, Jesus returned at his second coming. And Jesus simply wiped out those who had not received him as Lord and Savior. What did we discover? How did he do it? He did it with, with the sword of his mouth, which we know to be the word of God. Jesus just spoke, and it was finished. Along with that, the Antichrist and the false prophet were thrown alive into hell or into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. We talked all about that last week. And then now we come to Revelation chapter 20 and 21 and 22, which really are some of the most fascinating chapters in all of the Bible. So let's pick this up together, whether you have a physical Bible or whether you have the YouVersion Bible app. We're in Revelation chapter 20, verse 1, it says this. It says, I saw an angel, John's talking, I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for how long? For? For a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the what? Until the? The thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free, but for a short time. You see, we get to the point where the day has come where God finally, finally, after all of human history, deals decisively with evil. And deals decisively with sin. So what does God do? He, he binds Satan for a thousand years. For clarity, this is not Satan being cast into hell yet, like happened last chapter with the Antichrist and the false prophet. But rather, Satan, it says here, is going to be held, incarcerated, so to speak, in the abyss, or some translations say in the pit. How long is he going to be there? How long? A thousand years. His eternal uh, torment in hell will come after this thousand years. Now, a question might arise for you as it does for me. Why did God do this? Why didn't God just send Satan directly to hell and join the Antichrist and the false prophet? Why is he going to be released after the thousand years? Now, this is critical to help you and I understand more about God and more understand sin and humanity and our need for a savior. So let's go all the way back and kind of march through this for a moment. Why would God allow Satan to enter the Garden of Eden? Why would he do that? Well, it's simple. To give men and women free choice. Think about it this way. Are you really free to choose if you only have one option? Is that really freedom? You see, that would in fact not be loving, that wouldn't be equitable, that wouldn't be just. So God allowed Satan to enter the Garden of Eden, thus giving Adam and Eve the choice 
to freely love and obey and serve and follow God or not. So God's going to allow something similar to happen at the end of this thousand years as well. That God is going to release Satan for a short period of time. Ultimately, really, to reveal what's in the hearts of those who are unredeemed. Of those who have not surrendered to Jesus Christ. Once Satan gets released from this abyss, he is going to try and deceive the people of the earth, the nations of the earth, to get them to turn against Jesus, to turn against God, to go to battle against Jesus and his rule and reign that has been happening the last thousand years. And unfortunately, people are going to fall for the deception. Why? It's because of the darkness in their hearts. You see, our darkness, where does it come from? Scripture says it comes from our sin nature. And Satan's just simply going to exploit that sin nature, and thus he is going to be able to deceive people. He will convince some of those people who were born during this thousand-year period of time, hey, you don't need Jesus. You don't need God. Listen, God's your problem. Jesus ruling and reigning the way he has with a rod of iron and all this, right? You don't need that. Hasn't been Satan try, been trying that deception since the very beginning? Oh, you bet. And in his final rebellion, Satan will succeed in gathering, Scripture says here, Gog and Magog. Scholars debate and disagree who or what that even is, but at a minimum, what we do know is that he's going to gather a huge force of people whose number is as the sand on the seashore, according to verse 8. And then notice verse 9. What do these people do? It says they marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. What's that city? Well, we know that to be Jerusalem. Now, is this going to be a long, drawn-out battle that happens? Notice what it says next. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. So much for a rebellion. (laughs) So much for a long, drawn-out war. God simply ends it. Before it even starts, what comes next after this rebellion, so to speak? Verse 10, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. Who's there? The beast and the false prophet. They had been thrown a thousand years prior. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I want you to think about this. The one who since before time began, as you and I know it, has wanted to usurp God who has wanted to be worshipped himself, who has wanted to take over God's throne, he will end up spending eternity writhing in pain in the lake of everlasting flame. In other words, Scripture lets us know hell is not a place of non-existence. There's a belief out there that says, well, if, if there is a hell, it simply is that you just cease to exist. That's not according to Scripture. It's a very real place where torment happens day and night forever and ever and ever. Now, six times in these first seven verses, it tells us and gives us this phrase, a thousand years. Now, the word millennium literally means a thousand. And so people often use the term or refer to this as the thousand year, the millennial reign of Christ or the thousand year reign of Christ. And we see that because verse 4 tells us Jesus will reign for a thousand years. Let's look at that. 
uh, Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, it says, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life, and notice, and reigned with Christ. How long? A thousand years. So we see Christ reigning for a thousand years, but it tells us that he's reigning. There's people, there's thrones, which tells us there's going to be those who are tasked with implementing, you know, Jesus' government, so to speak, across the world. And they will be tasked with ruling and reigning and, and judging. It's going to be a time of unprecedented peace with no warfare whatsoever. I mean, think about this, that justice will be righteous and swift. There will be justice in the courts, peace and harmony in the education systems, honesty in the media and in politics. Imagine that. And who are the ones who will have the authority to judge? Notice it says in these verses that it's those who died during the tribulation period. But not only them. Daniel chapter 7 tells us also the Old Testament saints. Those who are faithful, they will rule and reign. Matthew chapter 19, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 2 Timothy chapter 2, Revelation chapter 3 and 5 also tells us that the church, the church that have been caught up and, and taken to heaven, that they will also be part of this kingdom and ruling and reigning, including the 12 apostles. So the question kind of becomes, well, then who are they going to rule? Well, Scripture seems to indicate, based on all that we read, that they're going to rule and reign and judge uh, the Jews and the Gentiles who had survived the tribulation period and had given their life to Christ. And then, of course, it's a thousand years here on earth and all of their offspring all of their descendants as the earth is repopulated. And by the way, think about this. Will the descendants be perfect? No, of course not. Many scholars state that since we are all born into this world as sinners, and so those will be born into this world as sinners, they, they seem to speculate or assume or, or, or conclude that that won't change during the millennium. But the difference of this millennial kingdom, though, is that the righteousness of God rules and reigns. That the justice of God rules, that Jesus rules. There'll be no presence of Satan who has been bound or his fallen angels to tempt us. And yet, the sinful nature still exists in our hearts. People will still have a choice to worship, to serve, to obey, to follow Jesus or not. So it seems that many will come to faith during the millennium, but many will not. And this is key to go down this way of thinking. Why the millennium? One of the reasons for the millennium is it's going to conclusively demonstrate that, that people reject Jesus, not so much because of their environment, not even so much because Satan is there deceiving us. I mean, think about this. Jesus is ruling and reigning for a thousand years. Peace, no devil to tempt us. And yet, those verses we saw that Satan will deceive people and who will go and attack God, and so people will still choose to reject Jesus. Why? How is that? Well, you and I can't comprehend this. How would they still reject Jesus who's even there in their presence? Why? Because of our depraved nature. Because of our sin nature. 
So when Satan's released from the abyss after the 1,000 years, he's going to take advantage of that sin nature. He's going to deceive people once again. And so this final rebellion at the end of this 1,000 years, the millennium that, that we saw earlier, it's going to demonstrate in an unmistakable way this is why Jesus had to die. This is why Jesus had to come. Because all of us, born prior to the millennium, during the millennium, all of us, Scripture is clear, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not even a thousand years of, of righteousness can eradicate the sin that's in people's hearts. There's only one thing that eradicates that sin, and that's the crucified and risen Jesus Christ and receiving him as your Lord and Savior. That's the only thing. Choosing to say yes to Jesus and his call on your life. Then and only then do we obtain eternal life. Once that point is fully and finally for all time, made as a result of even going through the millennial reign of Christ, that the only way to cure our sin is Jesus' death on a cross. Once that point has been clearly stated through the millennial reign of Christ, then we get to the point when God judges the unrighteousness of all human beings who have ever lived, who have not said yes to Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They will all stand before God at what is called the great white throne judgment. Now, why is it called the great white throne judgment? Well, let's see. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, it says this. Then I saw a great white throne. So that's why we call it the great white throne judgment. And, on, and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence. There was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Hold that thought. Books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. Jump down to verse 15 real quick. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So let's go back. I saw books open. Another book was the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in those books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up their dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, there's a lot there. What are we talking about? What are we seeing even throughout Scripture? Well, the unbelieving dead we see are going to be raised at the end of this millennium. And they will be judged in their resurrected bodies at this great white throne judgment. They've already died physically at some point throughout human history. But now, at their judgment, those who had not received Jesus and whose name is not in the book of life, they will now be, be judged and they will die spiritually, which is called here the second death. At this point, those who have rejected Jesus as their Savior, 2 Thessalonians tells us, they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now we go back into verse 12 and verse 13. It says that those who are going to be judged and who end up in this place of everlasting punishment and destruction, that they will be judged according in those verses according to their works. So I want you to think about this scene or imagine it. The multitudes throughout human history who have rejected Jesus as their Lord and Savior. These are the people who have said, 
I don't need Jesus. I don't need his forgiveness. I don't need his death on a cross to cover my sins. In fact, I don't even think I've sinned. In fact, I think I'm a pretty good person. I know a lot of people, and I'm way better than them. In fact, I follow this religion, or I believe in this faith. I don't believe in any faith at all. I reject all of that. If there is something, I'm good. I'll stand on my own good works. I'll stand on my own accord. And because of that refusal to accept the the goodness and grace of God through Jesus Christ, those people will be judged according to what's written in those books, according to everything they have ever done, thought, or said. They will give an account in that day of judgment. And what does Scripture make clear to us? What's going to happen at that point? Romans chapter 3, verse 23 just tells it clearly. Everybody has sinned. All of us have. We've all fallen short of God's goodness and God's standard. And Romans 6.23 tells us that the result of that, what we earn, what we deserve, the wages, what we have coming for that sin is eternal death, eternal separation from God, this second death. That's what's in store for everybody throughout human history. So how do we get out of that? Well, that's the good news of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. Jesus died on a cross for our sins and was resurrected. And all who would turn to him and repent and turn to God. Times of refreshing, the Bible says, will come. I love what it says in Acts chapter 3, how Peter said it. Peter said, the only way to be saved is through Jesus. And he said this, he said, turn to God so your sins can be wiped out. Because we all deserve to suffer eternal death, the second death, because of our sins. So turn to God, turn to Jesus so your sins can be wiped out. Man, I just encourage you, I beg you, turn to Jesus, right? That's what you want. You want to be judged in Christ for what he did for us. You don't want to be judged according to your good works and what you've done. Everything you've thought, said, or done, you want to be judged according to that? Man, why would you not want to be recorded in the book of life? Why would you not want that? The alternative we see here is the lake of fire. Jesus made it clear, the lake of fire, actually in reality, wasn't even created for you and I. He tells us it was created for the devil and his angels. God didn't design it for us. What God designed for us, for, for all of humanity who's created in his image, men and women created in his image, is that we would spend eternity with him, experiencing fellowship with him. But God leaves the choice up to you and I. He gives us free will. We choose our final destination And so God gave you free choice. He's going to honor that choice. Choose wisely. And by the way, you got to make that decision before the first death, before we die the first time. Now to wrap up this series, I want to just quickly commentate, run through chapters 21 and 22. They describe a a bit of what life is like after this thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. As good as that will be, there's going to, you know, obviously there's going to be sinful hearts and fallen hearts, and the devil's going to deceive them, and so he gets a moment, and and God, that's it, and the judgment happens. Now what? Now we kind of head into eternity. What's that like? Well, 21 and 22, these chapters tell us about this eternal state, tells us about this new Jerusalem where we're going to actually dwell with our Savior, and it'll be this place of perpetual light. And so John, what he sees is he sees uh, the current heavens and the current earth, 
and he sees it disappear and that God recreates everything. I love how it states it in Revelation 21, verse 5. It says, he who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. I'm making everything new. That's just a wild thought. New heavens, new earth. I can't even comprehend it, but that's what God's going to do. Now, while Revelation gives us very few details, or the Bible in general gives us few details about this eternal state, Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, actually says something just just kind of intriguing to me that grabbed my attention. It tells us that there is no sea or no ocean. That's kind of an interesting thought, that the new heavens and the new earth will not operate on the principle of water. Just think about this for a moment. Just kind of go with me and let your mind go for a minute. Just so just think about this idea of water for a moment. You and I live in a water world, right? Two-thirds of our planet is covered in water. Our bodies, our physical bodies, are mostly water. If you don't drink water, you will uh, die eventually. And John brings this up because the new heaven and the new earth is just going to be profoundly different than what we know today. One thing you and I know about the sea or the oceans is that they separate people. But in eternity, there's no sea. There's no separation. All of God's people will live together in peace and under the authority of Christ. Something else that's kind of interesting here in Revelation chapter 21, John doesn't tell us a whole lot about what heaven's like. You know what he does? He tells us what it's not like. Now, that's interesting to me because he says here in verse 1, there's no sea. In verse 4, he says there's no crying. He says there's no death, no mourning, no pain, no sorrow. And of all the ways that he could describe heaven, John chooses to describe it in the negative. Why would he do that? It's because heaven, the new earth, it's unlike anything we have ever seen or know. We have no basis for comparison. And so for John, the best he could do as he's thinking about trying to describe this, he's like, well, there's no this, and there's no that, and there's no this, and there's no that. Like, he can't even come up with the words in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The apostle Paul had been caught up to heaven, and he got to see the glories of heaven, and it tells us that he heard inexpressible words that were unlawful for him to even utter. I mean, that's, that's mind-blowing to me that he witnessed things that were so astounding. He couldn't even talk about it. He wasn't even allowed to talk about it. He couldn't describe it, wasn't even allowed to describe it. You and I, the reality is we lack the words, the comprehension mentally to even understand or describe heaven. We just have no frame of reference for it. It's probably why John describes it in terms of just what it isn't. That was the best he could do. And he goes on in Revelation 21, verse 9, he says, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the last seven plagues came and said to me, come and I want to show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Who's the lamb? Jesus Christ. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, Coming down out of heaven from God, it shone with the glory of God. This future world will be very different than what you and I know today. As this capital city, so to speak, of eternity descends upon the earth. If you go on and read in this chapter, you discover that John says that this city 
is 1,500 uh, 1500 miles cubed. 1,500, 1,500, 1,500, by the way. Now, again, that tells me right off the bat, if this city is 1,500 miles high, like the world's got to be a bigger place than it is now, right? It just has to be for it to be 1,500 miles in the sky. In fact, think about this. The International Space Station is about 200 miles up. So this new city is going to go beyond our comprehension, and so the world's going to be bigger. And there's no sea, no ocean, which makes the habitable places even more available. It's just beyond our description and beyond our understanding. And since marriage is the closest relationship that you and I can enjoy on earth in a good, whole, wholesome, a wholesome way, in a healthy way, it's where God intended the best expressions of intimacy to take place is in a marriage relationship. God in these verses chooses to use that imagery to describe the relationship that he will have with us in eternity. That we, the church, the bride of Christ, will be with him. And he's saying, God's telling us, reminding us once again, God says, I want intimacy with you. I want connection with you. I want closeness with you. I don't want to be distant from you. I want to be connected to you. I want to be close to you. And then you turn the final page. Last page of the Bible. Revelation chapter 22. It's God's way of bringing his word, his book, the Bible, full circle. What do I mean by that? Well, Genesis chapter 1 describes the creation of the heavens and the earth. Revelation 22, God shows us a new heaven and a new earth. In the beginning, God showed us there was day and night, light and darkness. But in eternity, we discover in this chapter, there's only light. There is no darkness. There is no night. First page of the Bible, going back to the beginning, Scripture began in a garden, and now in Revelation chapter 22, it ends in a city with a garden-like environment. In Genesis chapter 3, uh, a curse is pronounced upon humanity because of our sin, because we chose to reject and disobey God. And now in Revelation chapter 22, that curse is fully and finally removed for all of eternity. In Genesis chapter 3, because of that curse, man was driven from the tree of life. He was driven from being in paradise, experiencing the presence of God. But in Revelation chapter 22, the tree of life is restored in the new paradise of the new Jerusalem. See, the question is, what is God trying to tell us? What's he trying to tell us on this final page in this book, this amazing letter, Revelation, in this amazing book we call the Bible? The message is simple and yet profound at the same time. The message of Revelation chapter 22 is that what Adam lost in the garden, really for all of humanity, Jesus is the one who regained it. But not only regained it, there's even more. So as you and I wrap this up, as we conclude this series, you probably know we only scratch the surface. There's so much more. I can give you the books I've been reading. I can give you the note. There's so much more. I'd invite you to do a deeper dive if you haven't already started. I can tell you this, you'll only be blessed if you do. 
my hope and my prayer has been and continues to be as you study God's word and specifically as you study prophecy, that it motivates you to live a holy and godly life. Listen to what Peter said. He said, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord's return will surprise you like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a loud noise and the heat will melt the whole universe. Then the earth and everything on it will be seen for what they are. Everything's going to be destroyed. <laughs> There's his summary of revelation right there. So what, do, what does that mean for us? What do we do about that? So this is what he says. So in light of all this, you and I, we should serve and honor God by the way we live. Man, I hope, I pray, wake, prophecy, studying the word of God. Hopefully it's a wake-up call for us. As Peter had talked about here, as we've seen in Revelation, everything around us, it's temporary. Have you figured that out yet? It's all temporary. And as I just kind of, my summary of Revelation, just Chris's, you know, the Chris translation, don't ever buy it, it's not a good translation. My translation is, it's all going to burn. That's the reality. It's all temporary. Whatever you put your hope and faith and trust in, if that's something other than Jesus Christ, that doesn't last. That doesn't sustain. That will be all gone and all washed up and all burned up. Our only hope is Jesus Christ. And so in light of that, Peter said, live a holy and godly life. Seek to honor and serve God by the way you live. So I ask you, how are you living? Are you living right now in a way that honors God? Are you serving in a way that honors God? That's his call to your life. And I hope and pray you'll step into that question and ask that question, God, how am I living and how am I serving? Ask that every day. Am I doing it in a way that honors you? If you're here and you've been with us in this series, whether today for the first time or at any point during this series, and if you haven't taken the step yet to surrender your life to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and God gives you free choice, and he invites you to join his family, to come, Jesus is going to come into your life, he's going to save you, he's going to forgive you of, his, of your sins, and you will have the hope of heaven and I want to invite you to join the family of God. And you can do that here in a moment with us. And I'll invite you to join me in prayer. Invite all of us to take that step where we pray this. And some of us, it'll be for the first time. But we just say, Jesus, you're my Lord and Savior. And after we pray, we're going to step into this time of communion where we take the elements. This is that time where Jesus said, I want you to do this. I want you to do this regularly, and I want you to do it so you will never lose sight of, you'll never forget how much I love you and why I came. Because I came to wipe out your sins, because if I don't do that, man, what's in store for us is being judged according to our own works and thoughts and deeds. And so you're going to take, participate in this, this little wafer. Jesus said, take this. This represent my body. Do it in remembrance of me. He says, I want you to take this cup, this wine or juice. This is my blood that's poured out to cover your sins. As the, as the lamb would, would often be sacrificed because of the sins of the people of Israel, Jesus says, my blood's going to be poured out on the cross for you so your sins can be forgiven.
so they can be wiped out. And so you have an opportunity to participate in this moment with Jesus, never losing sight of revelation. It's all leading to this moment, back to what Jesus did in that upper room. Came to die so that we could live and spend eternity with God. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. You can learn more about us by visiting us online at lifepoint.org. If you are ever in the Sacramento area, we would love to see you in person. Events and service times can be found on our website. Thank you for listening, and we hope you join us for our next episode.